everybody, welcome back. I have become a podcasting maniac recently, inspired to record often, and I have another good one for you here today with my old friend and colleague, Sabato Segaria. Sabato and I, as you'll hear, used to work together at the Little Nell Hotel, where he was the director of food and beverage. And for those that listened to episode one, where we talked to Carlton McCoy about what it takes to be a master sommelier, well, Sabato was his boss. And since leaving the hotel, I've followed his career closely. And he really is a a renaissance man in the world of hospitality, food and beverage, and restaurants, uh, not only on the business side, but in operations. He's also a master sommelier himself. So he's a true overachiever, a true winner, and uh, somebody who I'm proud to have a relationship with. He talks to us a lot in this episode about how the coronavirus has impacted the restaurant business and what we can do and gives us a good idea of just how important this industry is to our economy, not only in dollar terms and employment statistics, but also on a human human level. So I appreciate Savato for those insights. Of course, this is not ultra content. I apologize for those of you who are anticipating that. Of course, this podcast, I'm hoping, will be different. You know, I'm sure it's not great for developing an audience (laughs) to bounce around to different subjects the way that I do, but it's what keeps me motivated and interested in recording. And it's a good way for me to tap the people in my network who have expertise in different things and helps us all sort of branch out a little bit. So I am happy that some of you are joining me on that journey, even when we're not talking about running. As you'll hear, Savato is a very intelligent man, a very well-spoken person, somebody who lives in New York City and can provide some insights as to what it's like on the ground right now in the city as it relates to the coronavirus. So it was an interesting chat, and I really appreciated his time. So let's get to it, Mr. Savato Segaria. Okay, I'm here with my friend and former colleague, Mr. Savato Segaria of New York City, formerly of the Little Nell Hotel in Aspen, Colorado, where we spent a few years of our professional lives working together. Sabato, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Dylan. It's good to see you, my friend. It's It's been a while since we've spoken, and it only took a global plague and pandemic for uh, for us to get reconnected. And just for our just for our listeners who are familiar with episode one of this podcast, where I spoke with our mutual friend and former colleague, Mr. Carlton McCoy, um, all three of us used to work together at the Little Nell, of course, in in Aspen, Colorado. But you, Savato, are a veteran and uh, an MVP of the restaurant industry, of the food and beverage world, and I figured under the current circumstances. Uh, it'd be interesting to just chat through how this is impacting your industry. Um, of course, we all sort of have uh, a certain degree of connection with the industry because of our own, um, you know, frequenting of establishments that provide food and beverages to us. But you and I both have, have a lot of friends in the industry mm-hmm. as well, and this is touching them personally to a large degree. So to start off, Sabato, could you please and just provide our listeners with a brief summary of, of your career in food and beverage and establish um, sort of why it is that you're an authority on the subject. I don't know about authority, but uh, well-seasoned, let's just say. Um, you know, this is the only industry I know. Um, I've been in the industry for a little over 20 years now. Um, started out in uh, West Virginia at the Greenbrier Hotel. Um, and was cooking in the kitchen, running restaurants there, went to be wine director over at uh, Ian Little Washington, um, a five-star uh, hotel and restaurant just outside of D.C. Did that for a couple of years and then woke up one morning and said, oh, I just spent nine years in the two Virginias. I got to get out of here. So that's what led me to Aspen. Um, I figured John Denver sang about West Virginia. He sang about the Rocky Mountains. So I'd be right at home there. And um, sure enough, uh, all roads lead to, lead to Aspen. And I uh, spent six years there, which was an amazing run um, as food and beverage director at the Little Nell, where we had the pleasure of working together. And um, 
you know, I passed my master sommelier exam there. So a little trivia. I don't know if you even know this, Dylan, but um, Dustin, our other friend, he was the third bald master sommelier. Yeah. He worked at Little Nell. Uh, I was the fourth bald master sommelier and Carlton was the fifth bald master sommelier. So a little bit of trivia for you. Yeah. And uh, after six years in in Aspen, uh, I was ready for a change and trying something new and had the pleasure of meeting uh, my uh, former boss, uh, a gentleman named Danny Meyer, who uh, started Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern in New York, and a little burger joint called Shake Shack that eventually grew up and left the house and went on to do its own great things, but um, moved to New York after Aspen, and I was the chief restaurant officer for Danny at Union Square Hospitality Group for four years, and over that time, we started out with eight restaurants in New York and grew it to 16, or 17, I'm sorry. So that was an amazing run and opportunity doing that in New York with someone that I had looked up to throughout my career and to be able to partner with and help grow not just a company, but a culture and people's careers was really, really rewarding. We launched the No Tipping uh, project, uh, which called Hospitality Included. That was on my one year anniversary. So that was a versus my two-year anniversary. That was an uh, action-packed first couple of years. And then after four years, was ready for a change, and I joined a company called Bar Taco. And Bar Taco was based out of Connecticut when I started, and we had 13 restaurants, and uh, grew it to 22 restaurants in two years. And we also had two acquisitions at that time. So a lot of stuff, and we were in 13 states. And so it really gave me a great perspective on the restaurant industry and scaling concepts, in working in one city and multiple cities, growing teams, communicating, and the trials and tribulations that come along with it. Um, but at the end of the day, whether it's tacos or Michelin three-star dining or barbecue, it's still hospitality. And, and that's ultimately the industry that I'm really proud to be a part of. That's a beautiful thing, Savito. And it's a very impressive resume that you've put together for yourself. And I always really admired you as somebody who was on the leadership team at the Little Nell when we worked together, but somebody who always like led by example. You weren't afraid to sort of roll up your sleeves and start busting tables when things got really busy, which was not, I think, typical of of the other people who sort of occupied, you know, those director roles. So I uh, always really looked up to you. And you mentioned, um, you know, Dustin, and it seems like you guys sort of have a new project going on and you linked to um, your sort of YouTube conversation that you did recently, which I'd like to point our listeners to as well, um, who are interested in learning more about this subject. Do you want to say anything mm-hmm. about, about that YouTube project and sure. what you what you think is you're going to use it for going forward? Sure. So uh, following your footsteps and seeing getting to the uh, this um, this sort of platform, um, you know, as we've gone through this in New York, uh, Dustin, uh, just to, to give people some background, uh, Dustin Wilson is a great friend of, of both of ours, and he's also a master sommelier. I hired him at the, the Little Nell, and he was in the Psalm movie trilogy. Um, I was in, in those. I did all of Dustin's stunt work. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> so whenever there's a tough wine that I jumped in and I did the, the tasting for that. Um <laughs> But uh, Dustin went on to become the wine director at 11 Madison Park in New York and then went to start his own business called Verve Wine. And so he has a uh, delivery, uh, or I'm sorry, an online and a storefront in both New York and and in San Francisco. And then he's also going to be opening up in Chicago. But um, we still are very close friends here in, in New York. And as this quarantine hit New York and we started getting a lockdown, there's a lot of uncertainty about the restaurant industry. And... Um, we're having these conversations one-off or I'd see myself having the same conversation three or four times over the course of the day with different folks and realize that in this world, when we're trapped within four walls, uh, asking ourselves the same questions, how we could actually do this virtually. And we started um, along with another friend of ours who is um, a lawyer out of Boulder who specializes in the, the food and beverage world, um, started doing a conversation we call free run and um, we're doing it on Mondays at two o'clock and it's live for people that have questions, but then we also post up there and leave the videos up there. So it's just with so much changing in our industry and everyone trying to understand which way is up, we thought that would be a great platform to offer a variety of perspectives in terms of what's going on in real time, um, as well as helping educate uh, people how this is impacting various um, facets of the restaurant business, whether you're in retail and wine, whether you're in the restaurant business, whether you're a winemaker uh, and how to 
how to navigate through these uncertain times. And I think um, there's strength in, in that community and being able to open book this because we're all in the same boat. And the more people that emerge from this successfully and stronger, I think the better it is, not just for our industry, but for the communities uh, which rest restaurants are so important to. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll make sure to point people in that direction here in this episode so that people can follow up on that project that you guys have going on and, and learn more as this situation evolves around the world. And of course, I want to talk mostly about what's happening right now in the industry. But before we get into that, as you've mentioned, you now live in New York City. And that, of course, has become ground zero of at least the U.S. Um, outbreak of the novel coronavirus. Um, has it touched your life in any way? Or do you want to comment a little bit about what this, the status is on the ground there in the city outside of your professional life, outside of the, the restaurant world? Sure. You know, you walk through New York right now, and it's a really interesting feeling because it's almost like I got up early on, uh, let's say, it's, you know, six, seven o'clock in the morning on uh, Labor Day weekend, whenever all the New Yorkers leave and you have the streets to yourself. But then as you turn the corner, you realize, wow, everything's empty. Everything's quiet. All the storefronts are closed. And it feels very odd. Um, and then usually I'll go out to the farmer's market in the morning, do my errands, and then come back home and then on lockdown for the most part. If it's nice, uh, it's been raining a lot, but when it's nice, going to the park, working out, jump roping, and then coming back. So outside, maybe an hour, two hours a day, but then you're within the confines of, of your apartment, and then you turn on the TV, and then you see what is happening in the hospitals. And that seems like it's worlds apart. It's like if you're watching CNN and they're broadcasting what's happening in a, in a war zone. And we saw this happening in China and Italy and all these other countries. And then you start to see sort of the the wave coming towards us and then it starts to hit, but it hasn't crested yet. And it's almost like a tale of two worlds. Um, last week, there was a, um, one of my former colleagues from my days at Union Square Hospitality Group, um, a colleague and a friend named Floyd Cardoz, who was a chef at uh, Tabla, uh, chef at North and Grill. He was on Top Chef Masters and um, he's chef in New York City. He passed away from um, uh, the coronavirus, and that I think really hit. It jumped out of the TV and became part of my life and realizing the magnitude of this and the impact that it can have on on lives and our industry. So I think for our people in the restaurant industry, it became much uh, much more real when that happened. And now you start to see how serious it is. And, you know, I had, I had coffee with Floyd a, a month before and he was getting ready to go to uh, to India a couple of days later. He came back on the 8th and I think went to the hospital right thereafter and never emerged. So it's when you see things happening like that, uh, that quickly, it's really shocking. And then I have to ask the question, it's something we can't see. So having, you know, working in close proximity as restaurants are, is it responsible to stay open? Or if you are staying open, what are the safety measures you have to take in order to protect your teams? Because this is not like the flu and it does not discriminate on who it impacts and who it takes out. So it was really uh, eye-opening um, in an unfortunate way, but it also shows the severity of it. And I see it here, but then also talking to friends around the country and see how, depending on where you are, this is, uh, are you a week behind? Are you two weeks behind? And it's really not a matter of if, it's a matter of when it gets to your your community. Yeah. Well, I'm really sorry to hear that. I mean, mm -hmm. it does seem that with the sort of accelerated uh, sort of development of the virus that, yeah, like it's, only, it's a, only a matter of time before it kind of touches everybody's mm -hmm. life in a certain way. And Luckily, um, you know, we here in the Northwest, or at least in Portland, are uh, at least seemingly uh, a little bit safe at the moment. But yeah, it, it does seem, you know, that uh, it's only a matter of time before it gets into every community. And as such, we're all sort of precautionary and, uh, and maintaining our social distance. And uh, hopefully that will go a long way to uh, mitigating things. But it was interesting. One thing I was uh, 
I was actually in Portland for a master sommelier exam. Uh, I think it was on, I look at my calendar, but it was whatever that Thursday was, uh, the 12th or 13th of, um, of March. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the 12th. And I flew back to New York. And that was the day that you can put an asterisk on your calendar that I felt the world changed. Yeah. And it was interesting. We had friends from Seattle that were there and we were talking about what was happening in Seattle and then came to New York and was like, okay, this is real. And then that's when everything started going on lockdown. Um, and you know, I don't think we'll ever be able to return to what that normal is. And I think we're all just trying to understand what the new normal is. Yeah. Yeah. It was really interesting and and it did just sort of like escalate so quickly and seemingly, you know, kind of out of nowhere, you know, we were reading news stories about how this was happening, but it did seem to get much more serious in a matter of hours, not even a matter of days. Mm -hmm. And we were traveling back from Europe at the same time and had the same experience, you know, we were just sort of like, wow, this actually um, is a thing. So, you know, to sort of leave um, the personal, I guess, impacts of the coronavirus on the back burner, at least a little bit, and talk specifically about what we wanted to talk about, which is the impact of this on on your business, on the food and beverage world, on the restaurant industry. I want to kind of talk about both the macro and the micro of this, of both like the the economics of it, and then also like the personal uh, parts of it. So I wanted to kind of start with having you kind of tell us a little bit about how important the restaurant and food and beverage industry is to the overall national economy. If you can provide any insights uh, that you might have, uh, you know, in terms of dollar figures or employment statistics, things like that will, that will help us understand just uh, how integral it is as part of uh, the overall economy. First and foremost, I think it's one of the greatest industries uh, in the world. It's one that touches the most uh, people, uh, whether it's through employment or through engagement. And it's one that I don't think we really understand the impact uh, it has on lives until it's not there. And we're, we're experiencing that right now. And the goal is how do we get back to um, being able to touch those lives in such a positive way? If you look at it in the, in the United States from a, a people standpoint, I think the, the number is just under 16 um, million employees. Um, there's more than a million restaurants out there. And when you start to put dollars to that, it's almost a $900 billion a year in revenue. Uh, which accounts to 4% of the the GDP uh, of the United States. So it's pretty big. It employs more people than the airline industry does. Um, When you look at how many people dine in restaurants across the country on a given day, that's more than people travel on airplanes in a given day. So again, the the number of lives that we are touching on a day-to-day basis is, um, is monumental. And then to think of that, you know, one thing people don't really understand, they see all the, you know, the, the rosy and glamorous side of, of restaurants um, and Michelin three-star dining restaurants and, you know, multi, you know, $100 ahead meals. But it's really, uh, it's for most, the average profit margin on a restaurant is really um, five, 10% if you're lucky. So that means that for every $100 that you spend in a restaurant, that the owner is being able to take to the bottom line Maybe it's five dollars. Maybe it's ten dollars if they're if they're lucky. And wow. so, with that, ninety percent of their revenue is actually getting paid back out into the communities through suppliers, through uh, employees, landlords, etc. So, it's really a, a pretty big uh, cog in the in the greater wheel uh, mm-hmm. of it. It's um, of the the whole economy. Yeah, it's so interesting and so eye opening to hear those statistics and then to pair it with that human element and just like how important it is to kind of like share meals with one another Mm -hmm. or to go out to get a drink with friends Mm -hmm. and just like how important that is for us, you know, as social beings, Mm -hmm. as, as animals to our overall health and well-being, Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, to understand that that industry has been sort of like totally thrown up into the air Mm -hmm. along with everything else. And it sort of Mm -hmm. gets into what I want to talk about 
uh, with you next, which is, you know, this virus has touched everybody's life and everybody's profession in its own way. You know, for me, like my day job has slowed down, but luckily it's, I'm not in a position where I'm going to lose my job as an athlete. All the races that, you know, were scheduled to happen between at least now and, and August have been canceled, but like, I still have my health. I still have the ability to go out and run, you know, so it, it's touched my life in, in certain ways, but certainly not in a severe kind of life changing type way. But for most of the people who work in your industry, it seems like that is the case. Like everything just came to a screeching halt, as you said, there around March 12th or March 13th or whatever it is. Can you like provide a glimpse into into how that went down in that sort of like really abrupt stop? I mean, did people have any notice that this was coming or like did people who you know who own restaurants or who are in the industry, did were people starting to prepare for it or was it just sort of like a hard stop button? I think, I don't think people were preparing for it because we didn't necessarily, you could see what was happening overseas, but we hadn't necessarily seen how the U.S. reacted on a state-by-state state level of it. So we were sort of the the, the first frontier, uh, if you will. And so there was talk about how we were going to respond to it. We talked about social distancing. Then it went to restaurants can stay open and businesses can stay open if they're at 50% capacity. And they announced that, I think, like on a Wednesday or Thursday, and that was going to go into effect Friday night. And then... As a restaurateur, you're thinking at 50% occupancy, there's no way that I can even cover my costs, let alone make a profit on that. So for me, it was like, great, you can keep your employees, keep some employees employed, but it's really not going to financially make sense. And for a lot of restaurants, they said, well, we'll just close down. It's better to do that than um, bleed money. But then also you had a number of very significant uh, restaurateurs that made the effort before, made the decision before Cuomo announced the, uh, the mandates of, of closing was that, hey, the safety of our guests and our employees is much more important. We want to play the long game, not the short game here. So they took a proactive measure and they shut down before those uh, larger uh, restrictions were put into place. And it happened sometime, I want to say like a week later, maybe even like five days later that they said, Okay, there's a moratorium on on restaurants. You can do delivery and you can do takeout, and that was sort of how it happened. But it all just like transpired in terms of okay, wake up today. What's the playbook that I'm going to have to 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 play from? Or what are the rules of engagement today? And then adapting um, to that. So sudden, and I don't think anybody's found stable ground in this time time yet. And say, okay, I at least know how to keep things going for the next two weeks, the next month. Yeah. Yeah. And again, yeah, it, it seems like everybody's sort of feeling that to one degree or another, but I imagine you have a lot of friends who are really stressed right now. And so I want to get into a little bit later what we can do to sort of help people out in that position. But before we get there, uh, I want to get a little bit more understanding about sort of like how this is touching other people's lives and other industries that sort of are interconnected. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm curious about is those, those upstream consequences, uh, you know, the, the farmers, the food producers, the distributors, winemakers. Um, do you have any insights as to how this is touching those industries as well and how it trickles down? Sure. And, and when you look at, and when you look at the restaurant business, um, everything we have is a, perishable inventory meaning that if a if a table doesn't get sat tonight i can't sell that table tomorrow and when you're looking at uh your inventory of food i don't sell it today i might be able to sell it tomorrow but it's pretty perishable i can't hold on to two that long and so as a result we're really uh playing this in the short term in terms of when we're bringing um food in and when we're selling it so there's a lot of transactions that happen and when you think about that how many times we're calling salespeople or farmers and saying, hey, I need to order this for tomorrow. And you're ordering from people, you know, six, seven days a week. So it's not as though I'm going to take my month's order and I'm going to receive it. And then I sit on it. So the farmers and winemakers, they're feeling the same thing, especially the farmers. And we'll start there. Um, as soon as restaurants closed, a lot of the same farmers that I buy from in the Union Square Farmers Market are the ones that service our restaurants. And that whole channel just disappeared completely. 
So fortunately, they've said that that is an essential business. And it's out there four days a week, and I start my morning, and I walk through the farmer's market. And I'm not, you know, picking up stuff for the entire week, but, okay, what do I want to cook tonight or tomorrow? And I think being able to provide food uh, or buy some great food locally and support those, you know, it's a small way of keeping them in business uh, until this passes over. Uh, when you look at winemakers, that's something that's really interesting uh, too, because I was talking to a, a friend who's a winemaker uh, in, in Santa Barbara, smaller uh, produ production, sells a lot of it to restaurants. And so that disappeared overnight and then made me start to think we started chatting and they're having the same thing. Like, where did my uh, demand go? It just evaporated. And there's little band-aids that you can uh, pivot to like we've done with delivery and takeout, but really it's not a, not a monumental contributor overall for most. Um, now some, some wineries are reliant on selling directly to consumers. So that's, that channel still exists. Um, others, uh, maybe in the more bulk, uh, standpoint. And so, uh, or, you know, larger commercial operations, they're still selling to the big producers because you've seen uh, people have said that wine shops and, and liquor stores are essential, which yeah. thank you. <laughs> that, I think that's a, that's one great uh, point of this, that it's helping keep that going at least. And there's some, some trickle coming out of the faucet. Uh, it's almost like that point when you hear it's going to freeze and the pipes are going, it's like, how do you at least keep a little bit of a drip going? So your pipes don't freeze up completely and everything backs up and bursts. And yeah. so I think people are trying to, to, to do that, but we're talking with this winemaker who was relying greatly on, restaurant sales the unknown of when this is going to happen but also when you look at the the life cycle of agriculture so he's got stuff that's in tank that needs to be bottled to bottle it you have to have cash flow the money hasn't come in and he's saying okay how am i going to get this into the bottle so that i can sell it and then start to realize okay as that gets into the point of okay um, the growing season is about to kick off well, if I'm buying grapes from farmers, when am I signing those contracts? Maybe some at the beginning, maybe you're buying at the end. I don't know what the demand is going to be when I come out of here. So it really kind of puts a halt, not only that, but I don't have necessarily the cash flow. So as you start thinking that through, he was kind of looking in his crystal ball and saying, you know what? I mean, with what I have in bottles already and what I have in tanks ready to be bottled, I may not need to buy as much fruit next year, or I might not even need to make any wine next year because I'm going to have enough to hold over to get through that. Take it one step further. What about that farmer who is harvesting those grapes um, come, you know, September uh, and they have those grapes. Is there a demand for those grapes? And so we don't really know the implications long-term, but I think every industry is asking themselves very similar questions and it starts to, to back things up on, on the runway. And mm -hmm. um, we're trying to avoid a, a pileup or those pipes freezing um, with it. Yeah, it's just, there's so much uncertainty, as you said, and there's, it's so complicated. Like everything is impacting the next thing. And then it just sort of metastasizes into this just mm -hmm. big ball of, of complication where mm -hmm. just everybody seems to be kind of behind the eight ball or at least uncertain about what the next three weeks, let alone the next three months, let alone mm -hmm. the next year looks like. And I'm glad you mentioned the uh, farmer's market thing because my mother-in-law made a point of going to the Portland farmer's market this last weekend as they deemed it to be also an essential service. And, you know, she, of course, you know, was going out of her way to try and help those local food producers and the Portland farmers market mm -hmm. is sort of a, uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, a big community gathering. Mm -hmm. And of course, they're taking the, the proper precautions. But I want to just kind of flag that for people mm -hmm. who are thinking about ways that they can mm -hmm. kind of help uh, individuals who are such a critical part of mm -hmm. our, um, you know, of our life as mm -hmm. as food producers mm -hmm. to uh, to do that themselves if they feel like, like mm -hmm. it. Um, and also you mentioned, you know, wine being a uh, deemed or liquor stores to be deemed to be a uh, in a central service. And I have a family member who works uh, as an executive for uh, for BevMo, you know, the mm -hmm. big the big box uh, 
liquor store basically in mm-hmm. California, maybe elsewhere as well. And apparently they're crushing it right now. I think people's consumption is high. So at least that that's a good thing. But as you <laughs> said, like your uh your friends in the uh in the beverage industry, mm-hmm. I'm sure, and and especially those wine producers are mm-hmm. in a bit of a pickle. But mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I appreciate your insights on those upstream things because, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's little considered. Um, so then to talk about the downstream consequences of it, um, things that people probably are thinking about a little bit more and that are impacting us, us average restaurant goers, certainly more so than, um, you know, the, the farmers. Um, how is this impacted your friends in the industry the people you know who who own restaurants and and their employees the people who who serve us every day as uh restaurant workers sure it's been it's been changing uh by the day as people try and understand what's happening or or what trying to get clarity on it Uh, i think first and foremost it's it's unfortunate you know how many of my colleagues have been that that aren't in the that aren't owners or, or the restaurant tours, um, but a lot of especially on the wine side have been laid off, and so a lot of businesses laying people off because with no cash flow coming in, you know a lot of them burnt through the the rent pretty their their cash pretty quickly. Um, others have taken steps where they'll knock uh, or they'll everyone's taken pay cuts down to um, the bare minimum of that, and they're taking steps to. Get their, uh, you know, cover benefits whenever possible. I think that's first and foremost, so people can can have that sort of uh, security in it. Um, but when you you look at um, as a restaurant companies, it's trying to understand, you know, first of all, when this happens, like, okay, how do we take care of our employees? Because we want to do that, and because we know we're going to get through this, and when we do, we need to have our teams together. And then when people started, I think, to realize the the duration of this and how long it's going to last that shifted. There will be a company for our teams to come back to. And it's really trying to weigh both of those and do so in a manner that is doing the right thing so that when we do emerge, we're really great about how we did it and that our teams appreciate that. And that we're, you know, at the end of the day, we're a business that takes care of people, takes care of people, whether they're in the dining room or whether they're on our team uh, in one manner or another. So it was that instinct that kicked in and trying to figure out what level, level levers we have to, to pull on that. It's a beautiful thing. And I hadn't thought about that, about how hospitality at its core is looking after people, right? And you're not only looking after the guests who come in and spend money, but you're also looking after those people who, who are on your team. That's a, it's a beautiful mm-hmm. thing. And it reminds me mm-hmm. of the world of sport and just like the, 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 um, you know, the great feeling to, of like belonging in that case. So I'm glad to hear that, that that's the case. And, and so for, you know, the people who have been working in restaurants, as we talked about, really nobody had a lot of notice in this, uh, when, as this was coming down, you know, nobody had, you know, the idea of like, okay, maybe I should save for the next two months because, you know, things are going to sort of revenues are going to turn off. So, and unfortunately, that's obviously resulted in uh, people losing their jobs or being laid off, as you said. Um, now, the the only option that is, I guess, been presented to your industry is to go takeout only, right? So, mm-hmm. are are most of the people that you know, um, you know, actively kind of pursuing that? Does that make business sense for most restaurants to to take that? Uh, that model, and what kind of percentage are we look at looking at in terms of revenue loss? Um, mm-hmm. Like, if you had to guess, I don't know if you have mm-hmm. direct insights into this stuff. Um, but well, I think it, I think it really I think it really depends on in terms of who can pivot to the takeout, and if there's a demand, do they have the channels there? Um, so that's one thing. Can you do it? And then it's weighing the options of is this the right thing for me to do or the safety of my employees and my teams. And some people said, no, it isn't. Others have been very you know, meticulous with how they've done that in terms of taking temperatures when every employee comes in, that they've got the masks, they've got the gloves, keeping the six feet and having the same group of people um, day in, day out. So uh, it's, it's not a lot of cross-pollination with it. Um, 
Then there's also, you know, when you look at it in the great, grand scheme of things, depending on the size of the business, maybe you can keep uh, folks still employed, um, which is great. And some businesses also have catering arms and they've been able to use that and they're doing home meal replacement for, for guests. And I think that's been a, a great stream, but others may not have that, um, that ability to it. But when you look at the overall you know, scale of it, to me, that's kind of like putting a, a Band-Aid on a, on a gunshot because a gunshot wound, because at most, maybe you're getting 5%, 10% of, uh, of what your revenue used to be. Wow. And again, if your rent uh, is usually anywhere, your rent is probably in New York, it's 10% of your, your overall sales. So it might cover that, but then everything else is, you know, uh, it really depends on business by business, but it's not a long-term sustainable model by any means because you got to think restaurants are, you know, they say it's location, 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 yeah. and you're paying for that. If I was to go out and set up a ghost kitchen or a delivery only, I would not be looking to do it on the corner of, you know, 19th street and park Avenue in New York city. I would be doing it much further off and I'd be investing in cars and drivers. So it's, it's a short-term solution. It's not sustainable. And I think one thing that's also interesting that most people don't realize is that when you're doing delivery in restaurant using a third party, those third parties are also taking, could be anywhere from 15 to 30% of the uh. overall sale. So if you're relying on those channels to get the food to your guests, that makes it even harder. Wow. It's more of an uphill battle. So if you can and how to support them, call the restaurant, order from them, go pick it up mm. uh, so that they can, that's another 30% to the bottom line. And that goes for pandemic or non-pandemic um, uh, with it. Mm, interesting. That's, that's really good to know. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you were like running a restaurant right now, is there any sort of maybe advice that you would give people to maybe get creative in terms of like ways in which they could still cater to their guest in a way that is like memorable or that has that spirit of hospitality to it. Cause I was talking to a friend in San Francisco who said that they had gotten takeout from a local restaurant and that the restaurant had done a really good job in sort of like providing it's sort of like a cook at home kit, you know, like a half chicken that was well seasoned with all the, you know, um, stuff that you would need in order to make it potentially restaurant quality cooking at home. Is that a, a good idea for people to pursue? Are there other sort of creative things that you've seen that might uh, be helpful to people who have found themselves in that situation? Yeah, I think, you know, it has been interesting in, in New York and I know San Francisco and, and Chicago and a couple other markets too, that they've actually, with this, they've also allowed restaurants to sell liquor and wine to go. So that's a, another added, um, added revenue stream because if you're looking at back to the economics of restaurants, um, some restaurants might be 60% of their sales food and 40% liquor. And so, and liquor is also the more profitable because it takes less people to produce a cocktail or a bottle of wine. And so once you pull that out of the equation, overnight a restaurant becomes not profitable. Mm -hmm. And if you were to cut that stream off from a delivery standpoint, you would lose that. So I think that's been a great gesture that a lot of states have, have taken on or communities have taken on um, with it. So some people are doing, you know, uh, cocktail mixes or doing theme dinners. Um, I think the Alinea group in Chicago has done a, a great job with, with their restaurants. It's a Michelin three-star restaurant, but they're saying, hey, we can do this as well. And they've turned it into a factory where they have you know, each week a different menu and a cocktail or even some wine to go with it. So I think getting creative with those. And just like when somebody comes into a restaurant, we say, hey, um, are you celebrating anything special tonight? And if you can have in your back pocket uh, a way that you can turn that Tuesday quarantine night into a magical memory, that's, I think, something that will... Uh, will not be forgotten by your guests. And so everybody's in the same boat. And the more empathy and hospitality we can show as restaurateurs in this, the more memories we're going to make and the more we will be able to transcend the four walls of our restaurant with that hospitality. And we all need a little bit of nudge to kind of smile on our face or get us to that day. And when you start looking at the calendar and saying, how many more days do I have to get through this? we need everything we can get from whether it's our community, our restaurants, our friends to add something a little bit different in there. So I think mm -hmm. thinking outside the box and finding ways to engage with people 
that's not transactional, which I think a lot of times just to go food is, but being able to help them get into it and think about, okay, you know, talking with my girlfriend the other night, we, uh, we made some uh, pizza at home and I wish I had thought about this ahead of time, but I wish I had gotten a red checkerboard tablecloth, put it there. I put on like the Dean Martin, you know, uh, Italian restaurant playlist and we dimmed the lights and we we're drinking a bottle of uh, red wine. I was like, wow, this is like transported our four walls from where we've been sitting all day long into yeah. some place that was far from here. And uh, um, I was, yeah, it, it was interesting. Um, but so thinking outside the box with that. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, the, the pizzas that you posted on your Instagram look delicious. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but I think it, it really does speak to the fact that even though these are really tough times that people in your industry, yeah, can think creatively and still like help people sort of make memories during this mm-hmm. time in a way that will halt- hopefully cultivate maybe mm-hmm. future loyalty to their business mm-hmm. once things do do settle down. So mm-hmm. I feel like even though a lot of people are in such survival mode. Mm-hmm. Maybe there is opportunity to, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, mm-hmm. develop a mm-hmm. even closer relationship with, mm-hmm. with your guests. Mm-hmm. So, and it's reinforcing that restaurants aren't commodities. They're places that um, they're catalysts for connection. Yep. And that catalyst could be with you getting to know a diner. It could be a first date. It could be a business meeting. Yeah. It's someone new to a city that starts working there and create creates that connection, that community. So, let's not lose sight of that and just think it's a commodity. Here's the food, go eat that. But this is where, what does it cost you to print out a little card and say, Hey, here's how you can take this from, you know, just a meal out of a bag to a true experience. Here's, here's our favorite playlist. Here's uh, a recommended pairing. Um, Here's these cocktails. Uh, Is it your birthday? Great. Here's a little cake, put this in the oven and here's a candle, like things like that, um, that are small, but those gestures are what puts smiles on your people's faces. And to me, that's what's, priceless when it comes to hospitality and, and restaurants. So true. Yeah. And the, and the catalyst for connectivity just reminds me of something I've been thinking about, you know, people talking about how this virus might potentially impact how we interact with each other going forward. And people saying, yeah, you know, like maybe people will work for work from home more or schools will go all digital and or maybe people won't eat out as much. And it just like bums me out so much. It's like, no, like the, we need places like restaurants where we can go and actually connect with one another. Like we need to go to the office so that we can actually see each other and talk to each other. And same with schools. Like, man, looking back at my history of you know, education and just thinking about having done it all virtually and how much would have been lost in that case. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, we all need to be safe. But once mm-hmm. this passes, I certainly hope, um, you know, we, we don't start looking at each other mm-hmm. skeptically. And uh, yeah, just, you know, kind of lose, lose sight of that important um, thing that's so key in the hospitality industry. And you mentioned the fact that the restaurant industry is such like a, a low margin endeavor that it really is for most people like a, a labor of love. And it's just so much hustle and hard work relative to the payoff. How many people are like of the people in your community, people you talk to regularly, like are many of them really scared right now that their businesses aren't going to survive this? Um, Is there any insights you can give into how this impacts different places, um, you know, like the independent restaurants versus the chains and um, just like what you're seeing in your community? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's, it's really hard to say right now because everybody's trying to speculate because there is so much uncertainty. Um, You know, on Friday, they announced the CARES Act and that was something that was general stimulus for the entire economy for small businesses, but it's, it's general, but every, every industry is different and every restaurant is different. They're all like snowflakes. And so it's what applies to one might not apply to the other. And so when that was dropped on everyone, it was almost like the beginning of the amazing race when they say, here it is and go. And everybody's struggling to get open let me call my banker, let me call my lawyer, let me understand what this means to me. Okay, when to apply, how to apply. And then even this past week, the rules of that have changed in terms of the interest rates. It started out, I think, at like 4%, then it went down 4% for 10 years, and then it went down to half a percent for two years, and then it 
last night, uh, it went up to 1% uh, over two years. And then today was the application day. So all this changing, nobody really understands uh, how it will apply to them. They're trying to figure out, first of all, how do I patch up that boat? We'll go back to the boat analogy. How do I patch up whatever holes are in there or the things that are causing me to sink? And if that's my rent, that is my um, utilities. And then, okay, what is the cash flow that I need to get open? And, uh, you know, to, to the cash required to keep a restaurant moving is much less than the restaurant, the cash flow required to jumpstart a restaurant. Because you got to think, bringing my team in a couple of days early, getting it clean, ordering the food, getting it prepped. That's like three, four days. Oh, I got to train everybody too. And I got to onboard them. So that takes quite a lot of capital in order just to resuscitate it and get it back up um, and running. So restaurants are focused on that. That's one thing. But then it's also what is the guest, what is the mind of the guest coming into that, you know, in terms of uh, who they are, what their mindset is, how frequently they're going to be coming in. Um, and that's really, really kind of uh, hard for them to, to navigate. And so you're trying to, you're trying to pull this all together, but not really know what the end goal is or who you're going to be serving at that time. Yeah, again, uncertainty. It's the, mm-hmm. the theme of this whole thing. And I think we all wish we had some idea of, you know, right. like some date on the calendar that we could circle where we knew that everything would be back to normal mm-hmm. and we just we just don't have mm-hmm. it and it's impacting some more than others and yeah. and that's um, the thing i think it's interesting in new york specifically is we were on the the forefront of shutting things down and here we are you know two almost three weeks after uh that march 12th day and you still have almost a dozen states that haven't done a stay at home yeah. and so we've been taking that hit but when you think that three months ago, there was a, a city in China that this disease, this virus came from that people had never heard of. Yeah. And it has since then brought the entire global economy to its knees. This thing doesn't Crazy. see borders, obviously. Right. So again, it's coming to a city near you. It's coming to your city, not just a city near you. Yeah. And the sooner you can shut it down, the sooner we can get over this. And so the, the concern I have in New York is, Great, New York can get this under control, but when you see the lag of it, if you know some city in 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 Oklahoma or in Texas is three weeks behind where we are in New York, are we then going to have to wait until they get over it before we can get back to normal? And so right. I think that adds the uncertainty, and then you throw in the deadlines um, that have been coming with the loans. Um, people are wondering, is it even worth me applying for that if the forgiveness or the loan? expires before we're even up and running or I can't even bring my team on because I don't know which the whole stimulus is designed to do is to bring people onto the payroll and get them off of public assistance, which is great. But if I don't know when I'm going to have revenue coming in the front door or how much, I can't really build a responsible business plan to do that. And nobody would want to hire people that have to lay them off because we got two or jump start. So mm-hmm. it's trying to to get more clarity on the timing of it, like you said. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, I read it an op-ed in the Washington post by Bill Gates this week, where he was talking about how the fact that it is a state by state solution and it's not a, a federally mandated stay at home thing is, is really kind of like the core failure that we're seeing right now. And <laughs> as you're saying, you know, you and I have both pretty much been in lockdown for almost three weeks now and, you know, it's already starting to get kind of old. And if we need to wait until these other States get their act together, uh, and then sort of start the clock from there, then it's going to be a long time before, you know, we see some light at the end of the tunnel. But And, and to play one more thing off of that, you know, I don't want to get um, get too political on here, but when <laughs> I think the stimulus checks are great. We want to get money in people's pockets. Yeah. But again, going back to when you shut it down, folks in New York, they've already spent that money. That's on their rent that is from months before. Yeah. So what's going to happen next month? And without all the states shutting down, I would think that it's in everyone's interest to, to get everyone on the same page and shut down nationally. If you were to incentivize states and say, if you don't have a statewide mandate, stay at home mandate, you don't, your, your residents don't get a check. I think that would probably get a lot more people on board and help us get to the end of the goal. I mean, they did that with the drinking age where they said, if your drinking age isn't 21, then we're going to hold back the uh, federal highway funds. 
And that wow. got every state to get up to 21. And in this state, I think in this day and age, doing something like that, I think would get us all on the same page. The stimulus would be designed to help give it to the people that need it right now. Because also, what if those folks in states that aren't shut down and their economies aren't impacted to this degree, if they spend that now, when they don't necessarily need it the most, what's going to happen when they do need it? So, yeah. um, but it is a, a predicament that the economists that are trying to figure this out, I do not envy them because there is no one silver bullet for every individual, every business, every city, every state um, across the country. So it's going to be trying to grease a number of different gears uh, at different stages along this process. Yeah. So you mentioned the CARES Act a couple of times. Um, how is that directly helping restaurant workers in the restaurant industry? Do you see it as being enough relative to the problem, or is this going to be uh, something that needs to be renewed or made more robust or you know repeated a couple of times before mm-hmm. it actually makes a difference? So the CARES Act, I think, is the, the first wave. And again, every restaurant tour is different. Every restaurant concept and business is different. Um, but the general concern that I think people have had is it goes back to the uncertainty with all the changes in it. And I can't even imagine how many hours of sleepless nights that this took to get together. So applauding everybody that contributed to that. But with it, the uncertainty of when we get back to normal. And when a lot of restaurateurs are looking at it saying, great, this can offset my labor, but I don't even know the, it's, 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 it's tied to the payroll 2.5 uh, times what your payroll was, um, you know, over the comparable time prior year. So great, full swing up and running, but nobody, uh, I don't think many people would be comfortable saying I'm going to gamble on bringing back all my team so I can have that payroll. And that's forgiven, not knowing when we're back to normal or if I'm going to need all those people. And the last thing they would want to do is bring them back and then have to lay them off or find out, wow, my business went under because I took that loan and the business wasn't there. I can't pay that back. And then, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's full there. So right now I think, there are going to have to be other iterations of this. And I would think the ones that would be most impactful would be to ensure that there is a business to go back to. So that would be first and foremost. So how do, is there some subsidy with rent? Is there um, uh, support with utilities? And um, the other one that's, that's big is the business interruption loss. Um, and that is a lot of uh, businesses, restaurants specifically also, or not specifically, but a lot of restaurants take this out in case there is something that happens and they have to close, that it can offset that uh, and they can get the, the money that they, they would have lost. That would put cash flow back into their pockets. They've spent just trying to, to keep afloat during this uncertain time before they had to close. The challenge is that insurance companies, I believe it was after uh, the SARS or there's something that some sort of uh, virus that broke out on cruise ships, I think is what caused it to, um, to, to put in a clause that viruses uh, made were not eligible to trigger the business interruption. And so a lot of people went to file these business interruption claims and then found out that, Oh, that's not covered under here. And so that was a real gut punch when they said, okay, great, I'm covered. I feel like I got this. And so I think a lot of people were making some of those uh, commitments to their team members based on knowing, okay, I'll be able to offset it with this. And then when that happens, like, ooh, there goes that, I hope. So yeah. that's another area that um, I think would, would need some help or could be useful um, if they were to address that. Yeah, it seems like by all accounts that this is just like the, the first, I guess, iteration of this mm-hmm. legislation and that there's going to be more needed. And it's crazy because it's already mm-hmm. so much bigger than the stimulus that uh, we needed to recover from mm-hmm the housing crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so crazy. That European mm-hmm. model, I think, is really interesting where mm-hmm. countries are basically paying um, workers, I think, what is it, 75 or 80% of their salary and, mm-hmm. and therefore kind of allowing employers to kind of keep people employed where, um, you know, since we don't have that federal kind of leadership and state mm-hmm. by state and there's so much uncertainty and so much confusion as mm-hmm. to how to go about it, you know, we, mm-hmm. we then lose that sort of like feeling of community and that feeling of like, we're all in this together and we start being a little mm-hmm. territorial and 
yeah, just being more stressed out about our own personal solutions and, and less neighborly, I guess. Um, so like as restaurant goers, as people who have been touched by this virus, but not to the degree that everybody else has, for those of us who whose lives are maybe a little bit inconvenienced, but not put into crisis, how can we help um, the restaurant industry aside from um, or, you know, the, the whole ecosystem of food and beverage, uh, aside from, as we mentioned, going to our local farmer's market, maintaining mm-hmm. physical and social distancing mm-hmm. while we're there, what else can we do? Um, I mean, going to take out, buying gift certificates, mm-hmm. um, spending our money is one thing. Is mm-hmm. there anything else that, that we can do as regular people? Well, I think first and foremost, it's stay at home. And this is collectively, not just restaurants, but as a country, I think, the less chance there is to pass this from one person to another, the more we can get this contained and the quicker we'll get over it. So that's the first and foremost for recovery as a, as a country, um, washing hands, all those basic things. Those are things that everybody can contribute to, whether this is, whether you're in New York or whether you're in um, the rural woods of wherever and a small little town. Um, it just, that helps because as long as it's out there and as long as there's, uh, this is really devastating to one community. It's going to impact other communities. So I think that's that's first and foremost. Um, you know, it's supporting your restaurants uh, when you can, how you can. Uh, but I think first and the the most impactful thing in playing the long game, it's reaching out to your senators, your um, uh, congressmen and women, reaching out to uh, mayors and governors, and letting them know how much restaurants mean to the community and that they need more support. Um, I think that's what it is in, in, you know, I, in New York, there was, um, somebody did a virtual town hall with restaurateurs and said, wow, these are a lot of things we didn't think of. And I think every industry is different, but by letting them know the ones that are going to, that are going to need different type of support and the more voices sharing that is what is, what is key. And, um, I, I hadn't really reached out to my senators or congressmen before, and I did it one day and it was actually very easy to do. Um, but I think, reaching out and sending them your concerns really matters. Um, so that's, I think, one of the biggest things that, that you can do for the long haul of this. Cool. Yeah. And, and that just staying at home thing, obviously, again, just like the core fundamental thing that needs to be done so that mm-hmm. we can make this as short as possible mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. yeah, the, the, the pain on these small businesses mm-hmm. is minimized to mm-hmm. the extent that it can be so that they have a better chance of mm-hmm. ultimately surviving. Mm-hmm. So thinking about the future, Saab, before I let you go. So, you know, like, the only other major crisis I can really remember happening in my lifetime, like on this level was nine 11. And I was very mm-hmm. young when that happened. And of course that sort of changed the way we travel, changed other parts about our, uh, our life and our lifestyle. Do you envision this having a, a similar impact on the way people, um, congregate or, or the way, um, people sort of interact with the hospitality business and as somebody who is, you know, in the business and somebody who thinks about these things, is there anything that you think there, it might offer an opportunity to sort of like expand on in the future or businesses mm-hmm. that might, um, you know, uh, do well in the aftermath, mm-hmm. any other opportunities? How, like, how do you see this impacting the future? Sure. Well, I think you brought up a great parallel there when you talk about 9-11 and just think about how what it was like to get on a plane um, before 9-11 and what it's like to get on a plane now. And there's a lot of people out there, you know, depending on, um, you know, I guess anyone probably uh, what, 15 or, or younger probably doesn't really remember that, but what it was like then. But it changed the way we travel. And there's a reason we're taking our shoes off when you get on a plane. Uh, so I think the same thing is going to happen when we come out of this. And, you know, for, for restaurant tours, as I've started to, to think about it, um, you know, if I'm looking at an upside, there's a couple, couple upsides to this. Um, when we come out of this, uh, everyone's going to have to play by a new set of rules. It's not as though it's happening to one, one city uh, or one type of business. It's happening to everybody. So there's going to, in, in adversity, there's also uh, so much more room for innovation. And I think guests are going to be so much more receptive to that. They're going to be understanding of it. If it's coming from, from the right place. Um, also, 
at the same time, everybody's rebuilding their, uh, their companies. And so they're having to bring people on. And so great time to restructure based on the world that we see ahead. People are going to have to weigh what are the nice to haves and what are the need to haves and prioritize how they bring those back on. Um, you know, when you look at um, diversity in the workplace, what a great time to really lean into that and be able to create diverse workplaces um, uh, from the ground up. Uh, when you're looking at bringing team members back, recalibrating on what the expectations are and saying, I need you to be, I know how it was before, but I need you to be a little more athletic. And the job I'm hiring you for today might be different in a month, in two, two months and three months, but our goal is to get as many of your colleagues, former colleagues back on board, and it's going to come with agility. So that's for me as a, a restaurateur, why I want to get off the, the sidelines and, and get in there because that's the, the fun stuff. You really get to then step back and say, wow, look what we overcame and look what, uh, what we accomplished together. So that's on, on the operation side. But I do think from the business side, the business has to change because, and I'll go back to thinking about our guests. What is the mindset of the guest as they come out of this? And we've been telling them for the past three months, six feet apart, um, uh, you know, no large places. Um, going into a crowded bar is going to be very different than uh, than it was three months ago. And I even yeah. see going into the grocery store, there you're you're kind of paranoid, looking over your shoulder for an invisible. Thing that you don't even you can't even see it it's such so, a bummer it's such a bummer yeah. right so the mind of a guest coming in uh, as a restaurateur am i taking tables out so that a guest feel that i'm not right on top of the people next to me um am i looking at my menu and say before i'd put a bread basket in the middle of the table but you know what that might kind of get some people second guessing it so do i you know french serve the bread you know one person at a time um you know, the sanitation wipes and having those accessible and just sitting at the bar. And if I'm looking at uh, the bartender squeezing the garnish in there before, I might not give it second thoughts, but you, it gives you pause. Did they wash their hands? So we have to condition ourselves to create environments. So when a guest walks in, they say, you know what? They're taking this seriously. I feel like I'm in good hands. And I know they're looking out for my best interest with that. In the same way as like, if you go old school, like, oh, the condition of the bathroom was a reflection on the overall sanitation of the restaurant, you know, you know, the, the McDonald's uh, philosophy or the gas station philosophy, same thing goes here. Um, and then also when you think about the guest that's coming out of this with the unemployment rate so high, uh, they don't have the disposable income they did before. So what is it going to take to entice them to come in, spend their, their hard earned money or any money they have with you feel great about that and know, wow, they've, they've really gone out of their way to make sure that I could still come back here and be welcome as a guest. And so if it's looking at, you know, before there was just a happy hour menu, well, now is there, what's the, the, the meet and three of tomorrow or what's the blue plate special where come in, I can have a glass of wine and a, a, a plate of food or a two course menu for 20, 25 bucks wow, you want me back and you just yeah. want to see those familiar faces. So I think um, there's a lot of room for people to look at their their model to make sure that it is relevant and it's enticing um, and welcoming for those folks that come out, uh, that brave it when they come out. So, Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, obviously there's, again, so much uncertainty, which is going to create just so much adversity for so many people. But as you said, the silver lining is that in moments like this, there is opportunity for innovation and uh, just like an opportunity to, to potentially get out in front of what might be the next trend and um, mm -hmm. and serve people in a new and unique way. So mm -hmm. I think that's ultimately the goal of, of your industry. Mm -hmm. Sabato, you are also an Italian. Um, any, any Steve. words, any words for, uh, for Italy or any, uh, personal experiences about what's, what's going on there? Um, I'm supposed to be in Italy things? today, actually. Are you really? Um, I am. I had a, uh, a trip planned to Italy, um, for like, like 10 days with my dad and my girlfriend and I'm going to explore and we canceled, uh, mid February cause we saw sort of the, what was happening in Italy. Um, but never realized the magnitude that it would be impacting us at this time. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, one thing that's been pretty amazing is watching the resilience of 
Italians in their small little towns, the mayors, uh, you know, yelling at people <laughs> saying, if you have a birthday party, I'm going to send over the police with, uh, with, with fire, fire guns and, yeah. and things like that. And, and opera singers, you know, singing to communities and that's the resilience of community. And that's what yeah. restaurants can provide. And, um, I'm drinking a lot of Italian wine. I'm cooking a lot of food so that I'm not feel like I'm, I'm getting deprived and I can't wait to book that trip back. Uh, and I think a lot of people are seeing that side of Italy come through. And I just hope that when other parts of the country or other parts of the world are looking at us, that they're not judging us by Tiger King because yeah. that would be devastating. <laughs> If yes. that is the image that they're getting of, of us, because yeah, I do right. not uh, want them to be our spokespeople yeah. of, of this pandemic. Well, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful culture. We're supposed to be going out there uh, in in August, and I sure hope that we'll be able to to go there and hopefully contribute to their recovery in whatever way we can. But Savato, thank you so much for your time, man. It's great to see you. It's great to have a chance to to interact with you again. I wish you nothing but the best. And uh, yeah, tell people in your community to keep their chin up and uh, we'll do everything we can to support. I look forward right back at you, Dylan. Great to see you. And uh, thanks for having me on. So stay safe, wash your hands and uh, drink Italian wine and support your restaurants when they open. <laughs> All right, bro. Thank you, Sabato. And thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. You can check out Sabato online on Twitter and Instagram. He is at Sabato3. You can also check out his YouTube channel, which I'll link to in the show notes, where he and his network will be discussing how the coronavirus is impacting their industry over the coming weeks and months. Appreciate you all tuning in. Have some more for you very soon. Thanks a lot.